Super, super slow. I, I don't know about you, I find that super frustrating. I start getting a little bit antsy behind them, and then suddenly they, they, they start speeding up, right? You think, oh, okay, they're going, and then all of a sudden they're slowing back down again, and then speeding up and then slowing down, speeding up, and you're thinking, what is going on here? And as if you get a chance, you can sort of pull alongside them, eventually get a chance to pass them, and you look over to the side and you see that they're holding the steering wheel with two hands, but their thumbs are, are trying to text something as they're going, right? And I always look over and I think, oh, I'd never do that. I'd never be tempted to do that, right? Oh, except for the fact that I am tempted to do that often. Right? I, I was looking into this and I found actually something like 25% of accidents now are caused by people on cell phones. And as I was kind of looking this up and, and sort of following this internet rabbit trail down this hole, I came across a video. It, it came, I think, out of Finland, but they were doing this experiment with people. Uh, experiment or prank, you can kind of decide on what it was, but they brought a bunch of people together and they brought them into this uh, training, driver training facility. They took them onto this closed course and they said, all right, uh, we have something to tell you. The laws are actually going to be changing in our country. It's been illegal to text and drive. Now it's going to be legal. And, and not only legal, in fact, everyone is going to have to retake their driving test and they are going to have to prove that they can text and drive at the same time, <laughs> all right? And so they brought them onto this closed course and they said, we're gonna do some training, so you need to continue texting as you drive through this little obstacle course and you need to complete it. And so the video is them trying to do this, trying to text, and the guy says, oh, you made a spelling mistake. No, 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 and then they're veering off to the side, and they're trying to do this, and they're getting more and more frustrated, right? Either they're going super, super slowly and getting nowhere, or they're running over these cones that are supposed to be, you know, children on the side of the road. And eventually, one of the guys gets so frustrated, he says, I just can't do both. And the video ends, and it says, we agree. We don't think you should either, right? But it, it's funny because we all know that. We, we all kind of know that you shouldn't be texting and driving, you shouldn't try and do that, and yet that temptation still exists. Your phone buzzes beside you or in your pocket or wherever it is, and you think, well, I, I could probably just do it. Just really quick, let me just really quick check this one. Oh, oh I'm, I'm sitting at a stoplight. I'm sure I can quickly just text it and do it. We, we know we shouldn't, and yet we're still tempted to give it a shot despite the fact that it's actually going to be dangerous, right? We, we can't actually expect to split our attention and not miss something, right? See, that's true whether we're talking about driving, whether we're talking about the rest of our lives, whether we're talking about our spiritual lives. As soon as we start splitting our attention, the danger is always there that we're going to miss something important. If you're driving, you might actually cause an accident, but in our spiritual lives, actually the dangers are sometimes far greater even than that. This morning we're going to be looking at one of the churches in the book of Revelation, actually the very last church in the book of Revelation. If you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open to Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 14, but it's the letter to the church in Laodicea, final letter. And this is a church that, that had actually gotten a few things wrong. Their, their focus had been uh, on other things and they had ended up missing what was vitally important. So if you have your Bibles open, I'll invite you to follow along with me. This is what Jesus writes to the church. 
and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline." So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, it's as far as we're gonna read. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word that you continually speak to us. Lord, this morning now as we open up, Lord, I I pray would you give us a a focus, a a concentration that we might be able to pay attention to what you have said, not just to this church 2,000 years ago, but to this church here and now, Lord, to us. Lord, I pray would you give us ears to hear carefully what you have spoken. Give us open hearts to be able to apply and to actually uh, put these things into our lives. Father, we thank you that you speak to us. Father, we thank you that even at times you rebuke us. Father, we thank you that you love us. So Father, I pray, uh, help us to understand these things this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the the final letter in our series in Revelation. We are looking at the seventh church, the seventh letter to Laodicea, but but this one is actually unique amongst all of the letters. This is the only letter, this is the only church where Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say about them, right? There is no commendation. Every other church, there has been at least something, something good Jesus has to say. Here, Jesus actually doesn't have any, any compliment for them. Even when we looked at Sardis a couple weeks ago now, right, this church that was doing poorly, even then Jesus said, yeah, but you have some who haven't, you know, fallen away. Here Jesus mentions none of that. And so in one sense, what we're looking at this morning is far more like the car crash, right? We, we have This is a church that has not paid attention to the right thing. They've already crashed, and now we're showing up a little bit like the police officer after the scene saying, okay, what all happened here? And more importantly, how do we avoid this happening in our church, in our lives? And so this morning, that's really what I want us to look at. This was a church that had lost uh, a genuine passion for Jesus. They had replaced it with this satisfaction for material goods. And so Jesus comes and he says to this church, zealously seek after spiritual wealth. Repent and be reminded, hear what Jesus has done. So let's look at this letter together. It starts off with this call to spiritual wealth. Look at verse 14. Jesus begins with this greeting. 
says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I hope you've been noticing with us as we've been going through this series that all of these introductions that Jesus gives, these descriptions of himself, they're all linked to what he's about to say to the church. In fact, this one's no different. He starts off and he says, the words of the amen. It's kind of a funny way to begin, right? Usually that's how we think things end, right? Amen. But really, amen just means truly, Right? So if you can remember John, Jesus would often begin to, uh, he'd begin to teach and he'd say, truly, truly, I say to you. Very literally, that's just amen, amen, I say to you. Right? That's actually why we end our prayers with this amen. It's truly, may these things be true. All right? So Jesus is saying that he is the amen. He is the truth. And in fact, he goes on, says the faithful and true witness. Here, Jesus' assessment of this church would be correct. But he also goes on to say he is the beginning of God's creation. Right? John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus has made all things and nothing has been made that he did not make. And so Jesus is the beginning point of all of creation. Everything that's been made, Jesus himself has made. I said this will be important to what we're going to talk about, so just hold on to that for a moment, that description of who Jesus is. Verse 15, Jesus says to this church, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's a vivid description, isn't it? Right, here's how Jesus comes to this church and he is not pulling his punches. He's not sugarcoating it. He's saying, you guys are lukewarm and I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. This is disgusting. I want nothing to do with it. Right, Jesus uses this image of drinking water. And here is actually one of these places where I think sometimes we, we actually get confused. See, sometimes we look at this passage and we think, you know what Jesus really wants? What Jesus really wants is for us to either be on fire for him, passionate Christians, right? Hot water, right? All this sort of stuff, on fire. Or he wants us to have, you know, want to have nothing to do with Jesus, cold, far away. Jesus wants us to either love him or hate him. The problem is this church was in between. Now, in one sense, that that is correct, but I actually don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. And I don't think that's how the church in Laodicea would have even understood what Jesus said. See, we've noticed as well that, that all these letters are written very particularly to the city that they're living in. And so Laodicea sat right in the middle of two other cities. On the one side was Herapolis, on the other side was Colossae. And both of these cities on either side of them were known for something, at least in regards to water. Herapolis had hot springs in them. People would travel from all around to be able to go to their hot springs. They were these healing pools that they could come into and they had all kinds of good stuff. And so people would travel because that was a place of relaxation, comfort, and refreshment. On the other side was Colossae. Colossae was actually known for having cold water, which I know doesn't always sound impressive to us because we live here in the north, but, but remember, this is Turkey, 
all right? This is before there was such a thing as a refrigerator. They didn't have cold water. So this city actually had cool water. And so in the middle of a hot day, you could go to this city and they would have a cool glass of water to drink. That was actually a very unique thing. But right in the middle of these two cities sat Laodicea. And the water would travel down and it would cool down from the one way and it would warm up from the other and it would get to them and it would be this tepid, lukewarm, disgusting water that no one wanted to drink. And Jesus says, that's you guys. Your faith is neither comforting, it's not healing, it's not refreshing. Your faith is right in the middle and it's useless. You have lost your passion, you have lost what has made you useful and you're nowhere right now, right? And the worst part is they didn't even recognize it, right? Look at verse uh, 17, Jesus gives them another picture. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is, again, he's using illustrations they would have been very familiar with. See, a few years before this letter was written in 61 AD, there was this massive earthquake. It rocks the entire region. A whole bunch of cities all crumbled under it. There was damage everywhere. And so the Roman government actually came in and they said, hey, you know what, we're actually going to help you rebuild your cities. And Laodicea looked at them and said, we're okay. Thanks. We're good. We've got enough money. We have enough strength. We have enough industry to be able to rebuild ourselves. We don't need your help. Thank you very much. And the truth is they did. They rebuilt their own city from the ground up under their own sweat, under their own labor, with their own money, and they were able to rebuild. You have to believe this was a proud city. They were self-made individuals. They didn't need anyone's help. And the problem was the church had begun to look like it. The church had begun to think like that. They thought to themselves, I'm rich, I have enough money, I have enough gusto, and I can do anything if I put my mind to it. They were self-made Christians. I said the way that Jesus introduces himself is important to what he's going to say. See, here's what the church had been missing. Actually, Jesus is the one who created everything. That means everything they have, their, their jobs, their homes, their resources, their skills, their abilities, their opportunities, everything they have, their bodies, their health, All of it, even down to the very air they breathe, was a creation, was a gift of God. There is no self-made people. All of us are actually dependent on God for these things. In fact, God is the only one who is not dependent on other people. Psalm chapter 50 says of God, God speaking says, For every beast of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Right? God is the only one who is not dependent on anyone else. All of the rest of us are dependent on God for everything we do. And so Jesus uses this example and he says, don't you realize you've actually missed the point 
You, you have been focusing on what you're able to do, and you've misunderstood. You are actually wretched sinners, poor, blind, naked, pitiable. Right? You thought you were rich, but you're actually poor. Right? If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the church in Smyrna, Jesus actually says the opposite to them. He says, you guys are poor. You don't have a lot. You're destitute. But, Jesus says, you are rich spiritually. Jesus says the exact opposite to this church. You guys have wealth. You guys have money. You guys have means. But you are destitute spiritually. You are poor And so if we are looking at this car crash, if we are arriving on the scene and saying, what exactly are we supposed to learn? It's probably what we first need to notice is that if we are focused on the wrong thing, if we are focused on what we are able to accomplish, we are very likely to make a mistake and miss out on what is most important. Because the truth is we can make that mistake. We can be focused on on all of our abilities and our strengths and what I can accomplish for God. And and we can begin to think that we are these self-made Christians. I don't need anyone's help. Thank you, though. I, I don't need people to hold me accountable. Actually, I can deal with that on my own. I don't need people to be praying for me. No, no, I'm strong enough by myself. I don't need to be a part of a church. No, 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 I I can do this. I I am fully capable all by myself. The truth is there are no self-made Christians. That's a contradiction. To be a Christian means we recognize the fact that we can't do it on our own, that we are not strong enough to go through this by ourselves. We actually need others to help us. We need people to point out sin in our lives because the truth is sometimes we are blinded. We need people to speak in and say, actually, you have been focusing on the wrong thing. You've been getting yourself off track and actually you you need to turn around. We need a body of believers to encourage us and to hold us accountable to follow after Jesus. Are we trying to do this by ourselves? If I can just be really, really practical, let me say this. You know, we have life groups here at Central. It's not because we think it's fun to hang out with other people. It is, but that's not the reason. Actually, we have life groups because we actually realize that we need other people to help us grow and help us continue in this Christian walk. We aren't self-made Christians, and so we need others around us to help and encourage us along the way. We actually need that. We need other people to help us, and we need Jesus to be helping us. Look back at verse 18. What does Jesus say? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Once again, Jesus is just racking up all of these uh, pictures that they would have recognized from their city. They were a wealthy city. They had lots of gold. They they had a whole industry making clothing and, and all of that textile mills there. They had a medical college that actually specialized in eye care and treatment. Jesus is using this background to make the point, you guys, that's not where your hope is going to be found. It's not found in your marketplaces. Instead, come to me, buy from me what is true spiritual wealth. 
right? This is not a come to Jesus and you're going to be healthy and wealthy kind of thing. That's not what Jesus is promising. He's not saying you have to come and you have to start shelling out some money to him as if he really needs your cash. No, that's not what he's saying. Actually, I think it's a lot more like how Isaiah talked in Isaiah 55. It says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come here that your soul may live. See, I think this is what Jesus has in mind. Come to him and buy without money. Come to him and buy true spiritual wealth without anything in your hands. Why are you spending your life focusing on all that will not last? Come buy true, lasting wealth. See, this church had become so focused on the outward, so focused on what they could accomplish, they were missing what, actually, what, what they actually needed. Paul, in fact, has these same instructions for the rich. First Timothy, he writes, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, Paul is saying the same thing Jesus is saying. Stop focusing. Stop spending your life on that which will not last. Instead, spend it on what is going to last for eternity. Spend it. Seek after that true spiritual wealth. So if we stand in front of this car crash, and here is the problem. They took their eyes off of what was most important. We have to ask the question, are we going to do the same? We are proud, wealthy Canadians. We are self-made individuals. And if we're not careful, that will begin to define our church as well. We're going to define our church by all of the things that we are able to do, by all the stuff that we have instead of what Jesus has done. We actually need to be centering ourselves on Jesus, recognizing that we need him. We need him more than we need our next meal, more than we even need our next breath. We need Jesus because at the end of the day, if we have finished taking all of our breaths and we have not Jesus, we have lost it all. Right? Let us seek after true spiritual wealth and let us be zealous about it. Look back at verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I, I love this verse. <laughs> I love this verse because here is a church where Jesus has nothing good to say about them. There's no commendation for anything that they had done, and yet there is such great hope found here. Because Jesus writes this letter, and this is a, rebu a rebuke. This is a reproof of them. This is Jesus disciplining and correcting this church. Why? 
because he still loves them. Jesus had not given up on this church. This was not the end. If it was, Jesus wouldn't have even written this letter. So I don't know where you are with God right now. I don't know where you are. Maybe you've wandered away. Maybe you've spent a long time. Maybe you've never even met Jesus. But if you ever feel that, that little tug on your heart, that, that sting of conviction, that, that sense that says something isn't right, can I say that is a good thing? It means God isn't done with you yet. God disciplines, he rebukes, he reproves those whom he loves. In fact, Hebrews 12 will put it this way. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Goes on to say, for they are our parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. See, God disciplines his true children. He allows us even to go through times of, of trial and suffering, sorrow, but God has a purpose for it. The purpose is that he would actually build in us a character more like him, that we would be holy. This is how God treats us. Have you ever been frustrated by how long God takes to answer sometimes? You pray for something and you pray for something and you pray and it seems like the answer is always wait, wait, wait and you're starting to say, God, why are you making me wait this long? What is going on? Actually, maybe God is doing that on purpose. Maybe God is starting to teach you a little bit about what it looks like to patiently wait, what it looks like to rely on him fully for everything. Maybe God is letting you go through that because he loves you. He lets us go through these things, not because the pain is good, but because he knows it will produce in us a holiness, a, a character more and more like him. So the call is here, be zealous for him. Be zealous for what is good. Be zealous in your faith. Right? You, might, you might have heard of zealots before. Right? Oftentimes, that's kind of a negative connotation, and that's usually what we think of when we talk about zeal or, or being zealous. We, we kind of go to this extremist, violent, religious group, and, and we think like, ah, that's, that's not really what I want to be like. And, and yet, that, that is kind of what's being talked about here. Not, 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 the, not the violence and all that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is it is the focus it is the singular mindset that is matched with a devotion to a cause. See, that is what the Christian life ought to look like. We are to be zealous for what is good and not looking to compromise along the way. We are to be zealous in our faith to, to know God, to know Jesus, and to actually share what he has done. That ought to be a, a driving cause in our life. And Jesus says to this church that has been distracted all over the board with themselves, he says, now be zealous. Be singular in your mindset and uh, pursue after what is good. Be zealous for your faith. It's what Jesus calls us to as well. So are we zealous Christians? Are, are we zealous Christians? 
if I can be honest, I, I think most of the time we are moderate Christians. We're far more moderate in our beliefs. Sure, I, I believe in Jesus, but it's not like that is going to now dictate my entire life. Sure, I, I believe in Jesus, but it's not like I'm going to go start telling a whole bunch of people about it. I mean, that would be far too radical. I'm not going to actually begin to change my, my lifestyle or my habits. I mean, that's far too radical. I'm not going to actually begin to look any different. That would be too radical. At some point, we need to ask ourselves, have we become blind along the way? Have we lost focus on what Jesus has called us to? Have we actually been focusing on the wrong thing? Jesus calls us, be zealous for him. Because he disciplines us, because he rebukes us, because he loves us, let us be zealous with our entire lives, our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our intellect, our volition, our will, everything tied together, focused on Jesus Christ, that we might know him more, that we might look like him more, and that others might hear of him more. Let us be zealous for good. Let us be zealous for him. Hebrews 12 continues on and says, strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It says, strive, be zealous for holiness. Why? Because without it, no one will see the Lord. Here's the thing. There's no such thing as a moderate Christian. To follow Jesus is to be zealous for him. But what if we come to this car crash? What if we arrive at the scene and we realize there, there's actually a lot more of me here than I thought? What if I'm not really arriving as the police officer investigating? What if I'm actually arriving as part of this crash? What if my life actually looks far more like that moderate, lukewarm kind of Christianity that Jesus is about to spit out? What if I'm not even close to that? What do I do then? Jesus says, be zealous and repent. See, Jesus already knows where our heart is at. Jesus already knows what has been going on. He knows how many times we have failed. He knows how many times we've messed up. He knows how many times we have hurt ourselves, we've hurt others, and we've ignored God. And yet this is still the call, repent, confess your sins, and actually turn back to him. That's, that's what repenting means. It means turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. And yet that is the call for us. In fact, that's been the call for almost all of these letters. Repent, turn back to him. So let us hear that message and repent. I, I don't know about you, but I have definitely been at places in my life where, where I've actually heard that call and thought to myself, yeah, but I am so far gone. I've gone so far down this road, I'm not sure I can actually turn around. I'm not sure I can actually go back to Jesus. It's a long way away. Jesus is a long way. I'm not sure I can... I'm not sure I could even do that. Verse 20, Jesus says this. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. See, when Jesus calls the church to repent, he isn't far off. He's not a long ways away. In fact, he's at the door waiting. The call is simply to turn around. Turn around and turn to Jesus. Repent of all of that that has made us these self-made, self-actualized kind of people, Christians. Because the truth is, Jesus has done what we could not. We can't do it all on our own, but the good news is that Jesus has. That Jesus actually came And though we have sinned, though we have messed up, and the Bible even tells us there's a punishment for our sins, it's death, and we can't even pay it. Jesus did. Jesus came and he stood in our place. He came to earth, he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross for us, for our sins, so that if anyone, anyone would turn around, that they would trust in him, they would be saved that in fact they would enjoy that that intimate fellowship with Jesus. It's been part of Jesus' message all the way through. At the very beginning of his ministry, this is what he says, uh, Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around, trust in Jesus. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is already here. It's coming because there is a great reward for those who do. Verse 21 in our passage says, the one who conquers, that is the one who repents, who turns and trusts in him until the very end, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The promise is for those who believe, we will dwell with God forever. We will sit down with Jesus on the throne of heaven. We will gain far more than any earthly wealth, far more than your money could ever buy. We will gain in Jesus Christ. We will gain eternal life reigning with God forever. We will be able to sit down with God and no longer have our sins hanging over us. No longer shame and fear and despair and depression sinking and gnawing in the pit of our stomach. We will be with God forever at peace and enjoy with him. So our passage ends, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is how every single one of these letters has ended. It's a call to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to this church, not not just to this church 2,000 years ago, but to us here today. The call is, are you willing, are you ready to hear the call of Jesus, to repent of your sins, turn away from them, turn to trust in Jesus fully for the forgiveness of your sins? the call to zealously follow after him, fix our minds on him. Colossians 3 puts it this way, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. 
it's so easy to get distracted. There's a thousand other things that compete for our attention. We can come home and we're still at work because work has simply consumed our minds. There's all manner of things that are there to distract us. Moms, I I know you have a thousand. There's meals to make, lunches to pack, preschools to research, school to get the kids to, and after-school activities to continue to drive them around. Hear me, you can be a perfect mom and miss the point. You can be a perfect employee and you can miss what's most valuable. You can have the most amount of money and miss true wealth. Would we actually seek after that which is true spiritual wealth? What will last forever? Would we repent of our sins and turn to him? Let us zealously seek after true spiritual wealth as we turn every day to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have sinned. Father, we confess that we have not always considered you, that you have not always been on our minds, but in fact we have considered, we had focused more on what we are able to accomplish than on what you have done. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for those times when we have taken for granted the gifts you have given. Forgive us for the times we have cared more about ourselves than about you. Lord, I pray, would you make in us, work in us a zealous heart for what is good, a zealous heart for your name, that we would put you on display in our lives, that others might hear of your great name, of what you have done for us, of what is true spiritual wealth, of what matters more than anything else. Father, I pray, make us a zealous people for your name's sake. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.